Well, good morning to you. Hope everybody's doing well. I hope you slept longer than I did. That would be good. Uh, but I did get, you know, the Lord gave, gave me some sleep, gave me some sleep last night, and it wasn't as much as I'd like, but it's, it's good. I feel, I feel good, and I hope you do as well. I want to welcome you, and also if you're able to tune us online, and if you're uh, watching us this morning, uh, God bless you. Glad to have you uh, with us. This should be our next to last uh, class. If, if things go accordingly, I plan on next week being the last class, but uh, man, I've got a lot of notes. I've got, uh, let's see, we're going to finish uh, lesson 17, which is the ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and then we'll go right into eschatology, which is the study of the last days, and then we're going to go to 19, hopefully, and that has to do with final judgment and uh, eternal punishment of the loss, and then the following week, we hope to... Uh, to be able to wrap everything up, but we'll, we'll see how, how it goes, and, uh, but I'm just glad you're here this morning. I want to begin with a word of prayer, and we just want to invite the Lord's presence with us, and He would speak to us, uh, each one of us, this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, very grateful uh, for life, grateful to be able to uh, worship you with our minds and with our hearts. Lord, today we ask that you, the Holy Spirit, would give us uh, wisdom and insight and favor. Bless uh, me as I teach. Bless those as they listen and, and learn, and then they too will go and be able to teach. Uh, Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you, God, for the good work that you're doing in our midst. And We just pray, Lord, that uh, what we learn today would bring honor and glory to you as I was praying earlier, and may it encourage the saints, and may, may it motivate us to go and to share the gospel with those that don't know you. Lord, I pray for various needs in our church today. I, I know there are many, and I pray that you'd meet the needs of these this morning that are right here and right now. I ask you to bless them and strengthen them. Most of all, uh, just encourage them in their inner man and in their inner woman so that they would know, God, you are the Lord, the God of all flesh, and there's nothing uh, too difficult uh, for you. So we praise you this morning. We love you, and we need you, Lord. We need you every hour, every minute of every day. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us. And we pray that you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're looking at the doctrine of the church. We're on uh, point number three uh, under the purposes of the church, which is C. And there are three purposes of the church primarily, Grudem says. One is to worship God. Two is to uh, teach the Word of God. And then three would be, and I like the way he describes it. He says it's evangelism and mercy. Uh, evangelism and mer mercy, uh, number three, calls it the ministry to the world evangelism and, and mercy. And what he's talking about here is our radiant church motif basically is where we shine outward in evangelism and missions. And I like the fact that he includes the word mercy. Now evangelism would be uh, sharing the gospel with someone who does not know Christ. I mean, we're going through the, the basics of the gospel, man's need, God's provision, man's response, okay? That's the great commission, sharing, making disciples. But this mercy component has to do with a more social or a more humanitarian help to those that we are ministering to? Well, which one should we do as a church? That's an easy, that's an easy question. We ought to do both. Amen? Both meet their needs and share Christ. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament how Jesus did this? He met people's needs and he gave them the gospel. It wasn't either or, it was both and. Grudem points out that Jesus, he healed people, fed people, loved people that did not love him back that did not even believe in him, he still would heal them. He still would bless them and encourage them. And this is found 
in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 40. Some who did not believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God, he still, he still blessed them. You know, a lot of times we, in in Christian world, we, we draw a line between you know, the social gospel and the evangelistic gospel, if you will. And I... I don't know, in evangelical world and conservatism, we, we've seemed to be skewed and lean more toward uh, just sharing the gospel. And I guess if you're going to do one or the other, uh, only one or the other, I would say share the gospel. But again, I think it's powerful if we can couple sharing the gospel with uh, meeting, uh, meeting people's needs, just like our Lord did here. A couple weeks ago, Mark Cook and I, I see him sitting in the back there, we uh, got a phone call asking if I would help out with the uh, flood victims, the Austin Disaster Relief Network, we'd already uh, ministered to one family, and I was like, well, sure, we'll go, he'll help this family as well, and so uh, we went and bought beds, and uh, we finally got it organized, Mark did a great job organizing, and I basically just showed up, and we went down there, and uh, sure enough, in South Austin, I don't know if y'all have been to South Austin where the floods were, it is, it is really sad, you just go home to home to home, these people have lost just about everything, and so we got to the house, and I was excited. I was like, man, I'm going to meet needs. I don't know if I'll witness or not. Let me, let me think about it. I don't I, No, no, I was going to meet needs, and I was going to do what? Share the gospel. So we show up, and, and the lady is not there, but she left her brother to uh, welcome us in. And so Mark and I, we unloaded the, uh, the box springs, and we leaned them up against the, the wall there. And he said, all right, thank you all very much. In other words... Y'all can go now. I said, I said, hold on. I said, hold on just a second, Andy. I said, uh, I just want to take just a minute and just share just a little bit about who we are and, and why, why we're here. And he's like, okay. <laughs> I tell you, lost people may be lost, but they're not dumb. They, they have this sense, you know. I think they have this sense that something is about to happen. And I said, you know, I've been, uh, uh, recently I've been uh, just thinking about the Lord and what He's done in my life. And I'm just going to share a little bit of what Christ has done in my life. And I went through the reproducing discipleship plan of salvation. I shared the gospel with my testimony uh, wrapped around it. So I got to the end. I said, has anything like this ever happened to you? He said, no. I was like, okay. I said, um, is there any reason why you would not want to give your life to Christ? He said, no, but I'm not going to do that. I said, okay. I said, well, thank you for... Well, he was just real short, you know, real short. Thank you for the beds, but, but you can leave. He was under conviction. You, you could see that the Spirit of God was, was in this meeting. He was, he, and Mark was over there just to pray. And you were praying, weren't you, brother? I felt it. Amen. He was praying, and I was sharing. I, tell you, I, would, I would never think about going down there and, uh, you know, Hannah, helping them physically and not helping them spiritually, or at least not helping them. Listen, guys, the gospel was shared with Andy. He heard the death, burial, and resurrection of what my life was before Christ how I met Christ and now what Christ is doing in my life. That's what we're about. We're about meeting needs and sharing the gospel. And again, I like the way he puts it. He calls it uh, mercy, helping with mercy. I learned just a couple weeks ago when we were in Houston at the evangelism conference. Um, you, you know, Ross, these guys, uh, they wear their yellow, uh, the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. Man, that, I tell you, that is a powerful ministry, by the way. I don't know if y'all have ever had a chance to minister with some of those folks. Of course, we have our own Austin Disaster Relief but the larger Southern Baptists, they uh, was up eating breakfast, and they were everywhere. And they were bright yellow shirts. I was like, man, you guys are everywhere. And I said, I just want you all to know I sure do appreciate you guys. Make me proud to be a Southern Baptist. And I said, I understand that we're the third largest relief agency in the world. And this elderly man said, no, we're not. I said, well, what's up? He said, we're the second 
largest. And I was like, are you serious? You got the Red Cross, Southern Baptist, and Salvation Army. Southern Baptists now are number two in all the United States in meeting people's needs at the point of catastrophe. I'll tell you guys, I, I, I pride in a good way. It makes me proud of what our people are doing, our Southern Baptists. That's our cooperative program, Dollars at Work, uh, if you will. So Grudem, he closes this uh, chapter 44 on ecclesiology. He says, I make appeal to you for balance. The church must engage in all three, worship, discipleship, and evangelism, not just evangelism to the neglect of discipleship and worship, and not just worship to the neglect of evangelism and discipleship. He, he appeals to us to have a holistic uh, ministry. And I wrote here in my notes, I have yet to meet a follower of Christ who is worshiping Jesus in sweet fellowship with him, filled with the Holy Spirit, deep in the Word of God, who does not witness. You know what I'm saying? Somebody who is just in love with God, being filled with the Spirit of God and reading the Word of God, you cannot help but share the story of God, the story of the gospel. Uh, Rick Warren, under this section of purposes, he says there are five purposes of the church, and there are worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. You know, when he wrote this book, uh, oh goodness, in the 90s, the purpose-driven church followed up, or the purpose-driven life, then followed up with the purpose-driven church. He, he says, this is our statement of purpose at Saddleback. It is to bring people to Jesus. That's the way he starts. He said, our purpose as a church is to bring people to Jesus and membership in his family, develop them to Christ-like maturity, equip them for ministry in the church and life and their life mission in the world in order to magnify God's name. So he says there are five primary purposes of the church. And uh, Tom Rayner, he, he says, well, let me add one more. And he says... One of the primary purposes of the church is prayer. And I don't think Rick Warren would disagree with that. I think everything ought to be saturated and bathed uh, in prayer. If you want a good book, a good resource on the power of prayer as it um, relates to the local church, I do encourage you to read Mark Batterson's book, The Circle Maker. It is, it is really a good book that talks about how God... It, it really is prayerology and ecclesiology, if you will, the study of how prayer impacts a local church there in Washington, D.C. I think it's a good, a good read for you, a good resource for you. Okay, we're going to wrap up the ecclesiology part by looking at D, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Grudem's an interesting bird. I don't know that I've ever met anybody like this who is so cerebral, so doctrinal, Ph.D., wherever it is, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, one of those places, and yet he is a very much centered on pneumatology. He gets the Holy Spirit. In fact, a lot of people disagree with him at this point because he is so charismatic. And he is... Would you all put that together? Would you put together a, a great theologian with a real emphasis on the, on the Holy Spirit? He does that. Wayne Grudem does that. In fact, he has 72 pages on pneumatology, on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in your Christian belief books... I think there's two pages. <laughs> there's two pages. So you have two of 72, and so I'm going to just kind of summarize some of his beliefs and what he teaches about the gifts uh, of the Holy Spirit. He believes, like I do, that all the gifts are still operative today. Now, immediately, he loses many theologians at that point. There are many, even in our Southern Baptist realm, who do not agree with it. They are what you call cessationists. A cessationist is someone who believes the gifts have ceased, or the more miraculous gifts like healing, 
and tongues and prophecy and those kind of things, they believe that that died out once the New Testament canon was formally uh, embraced. And um, so they say, well, we don't really need all those miraculous gifts because we have the Scriptures. I have dear friends of mine that we just agree to disagree at this point because I'm kind of like Grudem on this. I believe that the Holy Spirit still gives the same gifts that he gave in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. I believe they're all there. The key is to understand what your gift is and then be in a church where you are free to exercise that gift, okay? Grudem, uh, he says, yes, these, these miraculous gifts are still... Uh, are still in vogue, are still uh, operational today in the, in the local church. He sees the apostle, for example, uh, and he gave some to be apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. He sees the gift of the apostle as not so much a gift as it is a role, as it is an office. But another guy that I have a lot of respect for, Tom Rayner, he says, no, I see it as both. I see the, the spiritual gift of the apostle is the church planter, someone who can go in and and where nobody else has gone and really plant a ministry for Christ, and then also the apostles. Now, the original apostles are dead and in heaven. I mean, you have 12 apostles, okay, and one betrayed Jesus, and they replaced him with Matthias. And so you see the, the office or the role of the apostle. To me, the dynamic equivalent of that today would be somebody who has this missionary spirit of church planting, okay? That's just, that's just an example. And he goes through all, all of the gifts, and... I was looking at the different chapters I have not finished in the big one. I didn't bring it today because I didn't feel like I needed to work out this morning. But I tell you, that thing is massive. So over the next few weeks when we finish up this class, that is on my to-do list. I want to go through the chapters that I have not finished in his book, and I want to, um, and I want to read those chapters. Because some people say, man, he just, he's just out there on the spiritual gifts. I just do not agree with where Grudem is on the spiritual gifts, so I want to see uh, kind of where he is uh, out there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, he says, talks about tongues ceasing and knowledge passing away. He said, yeah, that will happen when Christ comes again. And since Christ has not come again, then we still have knowledge and we still have uh, tongues. He said, when Christ returns, spiritual gifts will pass away, for there will no longer be any need for them. Uh, and that's 1 Corinthians 13, 8. The Holy Spirit empowered the early church, gave them gifts. Now, why would you think that the Holy Spirit, when he comes at Pentecost and he baptizes those believers and then they go out and they share the gospel and people are saved, every time a person is saved, they are given at least one gift and most of the time multiple gifts. Why did God do that? I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to go ahead and give you the answer. He did that so that we could glorify him and serve him better and build up his church. And I tell you, the Christian who finds out what his gift is, what her gift is, that is the Christian who's going to be blessed and satisfied and used by God and motivated when you know how God has wired you spiritually. What is in your spiritual DNA? Is it the gift of discernment? Is it the gift of teaching? Is it the gift of administration? Whatever that gift is, you, you take it, you receive it, you say, thank you, Lord, and then you use it for the benefit of the body. Let, let me give you a couple of verses that, that deal with this. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is one text I want to read to you. It says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, to each one, each believer, for the profit of all. So the gift not given to me just for my benefit. God's given me the gift of teaching so that I would be a blessing and a benefit to the body of Christ. He's given me the gift of the evangelist 
so that I can go and equip and encourage other people so that they will go and share their faith. And by the way, the gift of the evangelist is manifest primarily when, you, when you're able to motivate and encourage other people to go and share their faith. Now, Billy Graham has the gift of the evangelist because God just anoints him when he preaches. He preaches John 3.16, says, come, everybody comes. It's amazing. You say, well, why do I preach like that? And hardly anybody comes. Well, I tell you, God, he gives gifts according to... Now, by the way, there is no gift of evangelism, all right? Please don't let anybody tell you, well, you don't have the gift of evangelism. Listen, do you have the Holy Spirit? Then you have evangelism, all right? Um, so all of us have been given that privilege and that honor to share our faith. But then you look at the the body of Christ and how God has put us together. Let, let me give you one, one more verse, and I've been quoting this all morning, it seems like, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he himself, talking about Christ, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, okay, and some pastors and teachers. And why did God do that? Why, do, why does God gift people and call them vocationally so that we could do what? So that we could equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts so that we can use them within the body so that the, the body is strengthened, so that the gospel can go forward, and so that Jesus Christ can be, can be praised. So one more time, it's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. If you ever want to do just a study of the, the pneumata, the charismata, the gift, the spiritual gifts, that are mentioned there uh, in the New Testament. Finally, I just want to say as far as ecclesiology and uh, wrapping up this doctrine of the church, um, you know, we're so blessed today. We have so many amazing resources that, that help us navigate ecclesiology, the, the doctrine of the church. Well, I mentioned uh, Tom Rainer. I pulled his books off my shelf the other day. I said, I've got a stack of books that big just on one author who has written, as a Southern Baptist, he's written very prolifically on the church. Ed Stetzer is another good theologian, good, good churchman, if you will. And by the way, both of those guys, if you're interested, have blogs, and their blogs are very insightful, very instructive, and so you may want to may follow them. Um, here, at, uh, here at Great Hills, you know, I, I talk a lot about the church. In fact, we have what we call the church at Great Hills, and that's where I have an opportunity, and one's coming up here in just a couple of weeks, where I will take them through uh, lots of material about our church. And it looks something like this. It's uh, the Church at Great Hills New Members class. And uh, there's a section in here that I have them look at. It's called I Am a Church Member by Dr. Tom Rayner. And it is fantastic. It is what is, it's basically what does it mean to be a church member? It basically means God's leading me here to not, to not whine. God is leading me here to serve it's not about my preferences, what the church does or does not do that I like. It's about Jesus, and I'm going to be here, and I want to promote unity, and I'm just honored to be here and serve here. So I, I try to go over that with our new members. We give them a chance to fill out areas of giftedness that they're interested in or where they believe God has gifted them, and then our staff takes these, and we try to start pairing them up with opportunities uh, for ministry. And so I, I talk to them about 45 minutes. Can you all believe that? 45 whole minutes talking to them about what it means to be a member here at Great Hills. Take them through our Radiant Church motif. Take them through the IKEA. How do you go from information all the way to engage and be advocates. Talk about who our staff is. And every time we have the church at Great Hills, uh, two things happen. One, the gospel is shared. And usually we see people come to faith in Christ right here in this room. 
And secondly, when I say you can't be a member and be living together, immediately, every time I've taught this class, we lose people. He said, well, Brother Dan, why in the world would you do that? Just keep that kind of under the rug. I'm sure God will understand cohabitation. Don't worry about that, man. We need more people in the church. I'm going to tell you something. I want to see God build God's church the way God wants to build it. You know, I really believe in regenerate church membership. That means that you are born again, and you're going to be baptized, and you are walking in the Spirit, and you become a member of Great Hills. And I tell them, listen, if you're homosexual, you can't join, and if you're cohabitating, you can't join. Not that I don't love you, not that I don't extend mercy to you, but as, as I understand the Scripture, becoming a member of this church is a big deal. And we don't expect you to be perfect, because uh, I'm certainly not perfect, but we do want you to agree at least with these basic axioms of the faith. Every single time I teach that, people do this. They look at their girlfriend, and the girlfriend looks back at her boyfriend, and they start smiling, going... He's serious. Uh, yeah, I am. And we lose them. We lose them never, many times, never to return. And they've come all the way to this point, and they want to join our church, but they're like, man, the bar is, is raised here. And as hard as I try to tell them, we love you, and you can continue to come, and we just kind of sift them out. All right. Oh, I have so much more I want to say about that, but I can't. Y'all are asking me way too many questions this morning, so y'all got to quit asking so many questions and let me get back to my, my study here. I'm just kidding. If you're, not, if you're watching online, they're not asking me anything. A bunch of them are asleep this morning, but that's okay. No, I'm just kidding. No, I don't see anybody asleep except for a couple over here. All right, so the return of Christ, lesson 18, that's where we are, 707. Oh, man, lesson 18, the return of Christ. We're going to look at... Um, Eschatology, eschaton in the Greek just means the end or the last. So eschatology means the study of the end or the study of uh, the last days. If you've been coming to Great Hills over the last few weeks, you know that we are studying uh, the book of Revelation. And we're just going verse by verse through the great uh, apocalypse. And man, I'm just, oh, I'm enjoying it so much. And I can't wait to just continue to walk through uh, this great book. So, Grudem, I think he does a very thorough and excellent job, at least in describing the different views and the different theories as it relates to uh, eschatology. Uh, but like his treatment on creation and his treatment on election, I do disagree with him. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you up front that Grudem and I do not see eye to eye on eschatology, okay? We agree with a whole lot, but there are a few key factors. He does not believe in a rapture of the church. I do believe in a rapture of a church. But by the way, he is not alone. Uh, most of the theologians are either amillennialist or they are historic pre-mill like he is, and that, that's a lot of theologians are. The dispensational pre-mill that a lot of you are and a lot of I am, that didn't come along to about 100 years ago, so that's more of a newer doctrine and, and Grudem's so cool, though. I mean, he, he's like, you can believe that if you want, but I'm going to tell you why you're wrong, and, I wanna, and I'm going to tell you what I believe. And I'm like, well, that's cool. And I just start writing notes, and I say, well, I'm going to tell you what I believe. Of course, he has no idea who I am. But yes, he does, because I sent him a letter the other day. And um, so I hope, to hear, I hope to hear back from him. I don't want to argue with him, amen, by any means, but I do want to uh, get his blessing and permission to be able to use his outline and put all my notes in a book, and I just want to see if he'll give me his blessing uh, to do that. All right, so the eschaton, eschatology. So, oh, man, where do we start? But just as God told us how things began, just as God tells us how to live today, God shows us in his word the future of the world. What are the, what are the end times climactic events that are about to happen? Well, there will be the coming of Christ, 
There will be the millennium, the final judgment, eternal punishment for unbelievers, eternal rewards for believers, and life with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And by the way, in that one statement, we're going to cover all of those. We're going to cover uh, comings, whether you believe there's a rapture or two comings or just one coming. We're going to cover the millennium, the uh, the great white throne judgment, the eternal rewards of, of the just. And so all of that <clears throat> we're going to try to, to cover. All right, first of all is Jesus' return. Let's, let's list some areas of agreement among probably all evangelicals, all right? I, I told you Grudem and I would disagree at, at one point, but look at all the ways that we, most of us, I think, if you're evangelical, Bible-believing, you will, you will agree with the following. Number one, that Jesus will come again. <clears throat> He is indeed the King of kings, and one day he's coming to his own. He is coming to reign and rule here on earth. You see the second advent of Christ, you see references to it in the Old Testament, but you see a preponderance of references to it in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples, okay? Matthew, I'll start with Matthew 24, 44, then we'll just kind of go through a number of verses. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming. At an hour you do not expect. And this is Jesus speaking here in Matthew 24. All right, let's just roll, roll through these. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Can we stop right there this morning and just focus on those four words? Has Jesus ever told y'all a lie? Has, has he ever deceived you in any way? He hasn't. And if he says that, that I am coming again, then you better believe it. He, and just as he came the first time, he is coming again. He said, I will come again, and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. <clears throat> this is Acts 1.11, I believe, yeah. Who also said, men of Galilee, these are the angels at the ascension, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, all right, who was taken up from you into heaven will so come again. He will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So somehow... In this bodily uh, ascension, somehow bodily, he's going to come again. All right, the next one. So Christ was offered once uh, to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time. I love this, though. But he's not coming to deal with sin, all right? Apart from sin for salvation. All right, so he's, he's not coming to, to die, all right, to purchase our redemption. He's coming to reign and to rule. And one more. Beloved, uh, now we are the children of God. Man, that's getting blurry. Man, I need to go to the doctor. I guess it has to do with getting 50, Misha. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's that, uh, you know, I used to laugh at people who have to do this stuff. I don't laugh at them anymore. Amen. I'm like, wow. Yes, I can do that too. My wife has them. I looked at my wife yesterday in the, in the car. I said, oh, you're just a good-looking woman. I just said, you know, I'm just so blessed to be married to you. She has these little glasses on, and she's reading right before we go to the hospitals. Every Wednesday, we, we go eat lunch, and then we go to the hospitals. Well, yesterday, we ate lunch with Vivian and Leo. Had a blessed time. Isn't she pretty, though? She is. She's just amazing. I know you're not watching, Ashley, but I'm just talking about you this morning. Amen. She goes, I love you, honey, but that's too early for me. <laughs> She said, you need to teach that class again, not at old dark 30. She said, I'd come to it. I said, I know I'm working on that, but I just can't seem to find a good time uh, to do it. Anyhow, beloved, we are 
the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we do know this, that when he is revealed, all right, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, that's just a sampling of verses that talk about the Lord's return. And I want you to keep this verse in mind because this is a great overarching verse when you deal with eschatology because a lot of times eschatology is divisive. I mean, you get people... I'm telling you, people get angry about eschatology. I believe Jesus is coming again, and you're wrong. And I'm like, whoa, man, you, you missed the whole thing. Yeah, there's a rapture. No, there's not a rapture. Yeah, there's a millennium. No, there's not. You nitwit, read your Bible. I mean, you, I mean, people, they get, they get wound up. I, I've noticed people argue and disagree more with how things begin and how things end more than anything else. Have y'all noticed that? But let me ask y'all, where in the Scripture do we have the right to get red in the face and angry at a brother or sister who disagrees with us? I don't... I, so, I, but, I've, but I've seen them. But, but look at this verse. Therefore, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with these words. So at the end, by the way, in the book of 1 Thessalonians... Paul, he mentions the second coming in every chapter. And so in 4, he says, but comfort one another with these words. In other words, this should not be a divisive doctrine. This should be an overwhelming, encouraging, and a blessed doctrine, knowing that Jesus will come again. All right, B is we should long for his return. I think everybody would agree that Jesus is coming, and I think every Christian would agree that we are to long for, to look for, to eagerly anticipate that Jesus is coming. Titus 2, 12, and 13, Paul speaks about the follower of Christ living soberly and uprightly, quote, awaiting our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's saying eagerly, anticipating. And Peter talks about this. He talks about it in his epistle that it should, it should dictate the way we live. We, we should live in such anticipation uh, that, that it impacts the way we actually live our lives as we are looking uh, for, uh, for his return. And Grudem says, uh, to some extent, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our lives at the moment. And I, I agree with that. I don't think anybody would disagree that we live in some very perilous days, and uh, it is spiritually dark, and it's getting darker. And we see radical shifts in our country. Even as we speak, we have this very palpable, obvious movement away from God, almost an anti-God uh, sentiment in, in our world. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 19, the, the power of the evil one is ruling this world. I mean, and he, he is very powerful. The God of this age is under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. But we don't lose hope because we know he is. You know, when I was, and I may have shared this with y'all, but it reminds me, I was watching a movie the other night. And uh, I was watching a show, and I had a guy on there, and he rang a chicken's neck. And being a country boy, I started smiling because I remember we used to do that. Y'all ever rung a chicken's neck, just pop his head right off his body? I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, you know, because after you do it, you got his head in this hand, and you're looking at that body. What is that body of the chicken doing? <laughs> Boy, he's, he is flapping wild. I mean, you're thinking, that dude's alive. He's not really alive. He's dead. That's a great depiction of Satan. Jesus is guiding. He is a defeated foe. Now, he's a flapping, and he's a moving, and he's causing a stir, but it's just a matter of time that that all ceases. He's thrown in the lake of fire, and we win. Dr. Tom, uh, Curtis Vaughn showed us that. 
in Greek. I remember sitting in the seminary, 80 others. I, we were just sitting there studying Greek. He said, let me tell you about it. Hi, you ring a chicken's neck. I said, amen. Good insight. Good insight on the devil. All right, so we eagerly wait his coming, and uh, we live lives, or we should, that to help us get ready for the return of Christ. See, nobody knows when Jesus will return. I, I think that's pretty much a, a basic axiom of Christianity. Nobody knows. If Jesus said, I don't know, then you don't know, okay? He said in Matthew 25, 13, we can read this, uh, Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore for you do not know. You know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Then in Mark 13, it says, 32, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, Watch and pray, for you do not know uh, when the time is. Now, to me, I think it's absolutely ludicrous for people to say, I do know, and here's what God has revealed to me, and Jesus is coming again on such and such a day. Now, there's a group who, ex who excels in this called the Jehovah Witnesses. Many times they have said, we have a revelation, and Jesus is coming on this day. Well, that day comes, guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because Jesus said you don't know. So why? As a Baptist farmer in the 19th century, his name was William Miller. He said, God spoke to me. He's coming on. And he gave the exact date. And a lot of people in America, you, you, you read the history of this guy. He was a Baptist, by the way. And a lot of people who believed him were other Baptists. And they followed him and they said, man, this guy, God spoke to this guy. And Jesus is coming back, and a lot of people left their jobs, left their lives, and they got ready for that day. Well, that day came, and guess what happened? Nothing. He said, well, I missed it, <laughs> obviously. So he said, now I got it right. Jesus is coming back on this day. Well, nothing happened. He said, well, the problem was we weren't observing the Sabbath correctly. And so, and so that's how the Seventh-day Adventist movement was born. As an aftermath of that, they said, well, we need to properly observe the Sabbath, which is not on a Sunday, it's on a Saturday, and then we'll kind of get things right and Jesus will come. Of course, I believe that whole denomination was birthed in era, in era and, and a lot of other eras I see in Southern, in Seventh-day Adventist, Adventist, though I've got some good friends who, who believe that. Edgar Wisnett said, September the 12th, 1988, he's coming again. Nothing happened. I remember reading about a guy that uh, in California, why is it always California? But the, he believed, he knew for certain that Jesus was coming again. And he led these people, they put white robes on, they marched out to a mountain on that day and time, many of them, and they were looking up to heaven like this, and they were looking for Jesus to come. You know, in some ways I admire that because they really, in their heart, they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, but I don't admire it in some ways because... This, this book will keep us out of a lot of trouble. And this book will keep us focused on Christ. And, and when Jesus says, you don't know, so always be ready, then we need to believe we're not going to know. We ought to always be ready. So that's C. No one knows when he will, will come again, but we know he is. D is the final results. Now, believers agree on the final outcome, and that is this. Jesus will return. Unbelievers will be judged. Believers will be rewarded. And in the end, no matter how you line this up, but in the end, for all eternity, we will live and reign with Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so there's a lot in between all that, but those are the basic facts of what we all can agree in. 
All right, but let's talk about some, some disagreements, and that would be E, the disagreement over the details of Christ's return. Here, here are the points of disagreement. I'm going to go through these uh, quickly, but then I'll kind of elaborate on some more than others. First of all, the rapture. That is a big point of disagreement. Uh, there are many people who do not believe in two comings of Christ. They believe there's only one coming of Christ. Uh, but some believe that he will rapture, take the church out of the great tribulation, and then he'll come back with the church after the tribulation. That's, that's basically it. It's, it's the tribulation. Is Jesus going to allow us to go through the tribulation with all the horrors of Revelation 6 through 19, or will he come and rapture us away? And I'm telling you guys, there are people who love God just as much as you do who disagree with you. I mean, they just absolutely disagree with you, and they would say, you, if you're the terminal generation, you're going through the great tribulation. There's no getting out of it. But others will say, no, 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 no. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and he's going to take us out of here. You know what my professor told me in seminary? He said, I sure hope we don't. <laughs> I said, come again? I was hoping he'd be a little more definitive. He says, I believe that. He said, I just hope I'm right. And what he was saying is, I may be wrong. We may go through the tribulation. There may not be a rapture, okay? But in the end, we still, we still win. All right. Rapture, millennium, great tribulation, the place of the Jews in Israel. That's a big point of contention and some other things. All right, so let me ask you this question. Could Jesus come at any time? Well, the Bible seems to say yes. There are many verses in the Bible that point to a sudden return that could happen at any moment. In fact, in Matthew 24, remember this? Jesus speaks of his return like a what in the night? A thief in the night coming unexpectedly, so therefore be ready. Christ's return is imminent. It means it could happen uh, at any moment. The early church believed this. They honestly believed that Jesus could come at any moment, the imminence of his return in verses like James 5, 7 through 9. You got 1 Peter 4, 7. And we have a couple of verses that we studied recently in Revelation 1, 3 and 22, 7. Behold, the time is near. It is short. Okay. And so the, the early church believed that it could happen at any moment, but I do not believe at all that they were mistaken. I just believe that they were, they were ready. Uh, in Revelation 1.1, I shared this with you, the entyche, the verse there, it says he's coming soon or, or shortly. Entyche is the Greek words there. It also can mean certainly. Behold, he is coming certainly. And Dr. Patterson helped me with this. He said, not only does it mean that, but it also means that when the events begin, they will happen with amazing rapidity. They will be very quick once they happen. And he says the book of Revelation takes a total of seven years, he says, for example. And also like what he says here, he says, because those times will embrace both cataclysmic judgment and costly witness, the message revealed is vital. Both phrases must soon take place, and the time is near, they underscore the urgency motif and suggest that the servants of Christ assess this prophecy immediately, end of quote. So you see what he's putting the emphasis on is urgency, not necessarily on chronology, okay? I hope this helps y'all. This, this really has helped me to understand when the biblical writer said, man, he is coming, he is coming soon. You almost think he's coming like right now. The early church must have believed. I mean, he's really coming but somebody, I don't know where I read this or where I found this, but this helped me a lot, that God doesn't view time like we view time. And when Jesus came the first time, God's clock began to wind down. So from here to when he comes again, 
All of these days here are last days. Does that, does that help? All of this is last days. And, and as far as eternity, basically this much time is really this, this, this much time. Okay? I hope that helps you some because some people say your Bible's in error. Your Bible's mistaken. Your early church leaders, they, were, they didn't know what they are talking about because they thought Jesus was coming. In fact, they even said he's coming again right now. And you can help them if they will listen, listen to you. All right. I like what uh, Grudem here, he quotes George Ladd when he says, It is true that the early church lived in expectancy of the return of the Lord. And it is the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in expectancy uh, of the end. All right? Now, having said that, this is why I like Grudem. <clears throat> he gets you thinking. You're like, hmm, that's a good point. He said, you believe Jesus could come at any time, but aren't there other verses that say that certain things must happen before he comes? And I'm like, you're absolutely right. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the imminence of Christ's return, yet there are certain things that must happen. For example, there has to be an antichrist. He has to come uh, before Jesus comes again and destroys him. And we know he hadn't come yet because Jesus hadn't destroyed him, all right? We'll talk more about that in a moment. How about the cataclysmic nature of the judgments in Revelation 6 through 19 when you've got the sun and the moon darkened, when you have... The stars fall, and when you have this massive upheaval and, and like a third of the world population is, is perished, I mean, those things have not happened yet. Um, neither has the Antichrist come. So there are some, some signs, if you will, that we have not seen happen yet. Now, here's, this is interesting. Grudem gets around it this way. He said, well, because he doesn't believe in a rapture. Now, if you believe in a rapture, this is not a problem at all. Because you can still believe in the immediacy that Christ comes in the rapture, and then, then seven years is when all these things happen, then he comes again. But Grudem is interesting. The way he gets around this is, he says, uh, they probably have not happened, but they may have. <laughs> That's the way he gets around it. And then he goes, basically he says, I really don't believe this. But, but you see, he has to say that. He has to say that they have had may have happened in the past in order for him to have this urgency that Jesus could come back at any moment. I think it's just a lot easier to believe uh, in the doctrine of the rapture, but that's just my opinion. So between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus, uh, these miraculous signs, in my opinion, they will be fulfilled, but they have not happened yet. All the nations have not heard the gospel. Remember what Jesus said? All the nations will hear the gospel. This gospel will be preached in my name, and then the end will come. The mass salvation of Israel has not happened. Romans eleven twenty six 26 has not happened. When Paul says, and all Israel will be saved. Glory to God, that day's a coming. The mass salvation of Israel, the Antichrist has not appeared. The sun and the moon have not been darkened. And the other phenomenon in, Re in the book of Revelation, they have not happened yet. But I believe they will happen before he comes. And I think they're going to happen during those seven years of the great uh, tribulation. Let's talk about the Antichrist for just a moment. This is a fascinating study to me. 1 John 2.18 says, uh, There are many antichrists. Little children, it is the last hour. <clears throat> you with me? The last hour. Now, you could read that and think, Man, John thinks Jesus is coming like tomorrow. But I hope, I hope this helps you, okay? I hope what I talked to you a minute ago. You either got to believe this or believe the Bible's an error. So which, which one are you going to believe? You know, I, I, somebody told me long ago, they said, if you read the Bible and you think there's an error, you need to read it again because you're the error. 
Because God's word, if you believe it, it, it is true. It has some hard things to understand. And I don't think John is mistaken. I really don't. I just think he's got this urgency motif. It's the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, there have been many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, again, all of this time frame is in time. And, and John says, man, we've got Antichrist now, and they will, there will be more Antichrist until the big one comes. Uh, and there is a big one coming. And he will be the, basically the personification of evil. He will, con he will constitute part of the unholy trinity. Well, you got Satan, you got the false prophet, then you got that guy, okay? And if you were living around 1939 in England, you would have thought that guy had arrived. What was his name? Adolf Hitler. Uh, Sun Young Moon, creator of the Moonies Unification Church. He said, I am Jesus Christ. Hello? He is what you would call a type of a, an antichrist. When we were in India, Puttaparthi, that city there, that was an eerie, eerie feeling. We drove into Puttaparthi, and there was this guy. His face was on everything. Uh, Sai Baba, Sai Baba. And he was a charlatan. He, but he is on every taxi, every building. He shows the hospitals that he built. Well, he was this guru who said, I am Jesus. And by the way, I am Gandhi too. And so people believe, people would fly all over the world, especially European from Amsterdam. They would come by the thousands and they would listen to this guy as he would teach on spiritual matters. And he said, I'm not going to die till I'm 96 years of age and I am Jesus Christ. So everybody was thinking, well, when he gets 96, he'll die, then he'll rise from the dead. Well, guess what happened? He died when he was 84 and he did not rise. So that tells me he was a false prophet. He was a, he was a type of antichrist. Sai Baba was his name. Y'all heard of him, haven't you, Alex? My brother's from India. Millions of dollars. Very immoral. A homosexual man. Very ungodly man. And yet he said he was uh, Jesus Christ. And what breaks my heart, though, are the millions of, of dollars and the millions of people who, who believed him. But the real Antichrist, he will come, and glory to God, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Jesus destroys him, and Revelation 19.20 uh, talks about that as well. Okay, so Grudem closes just this chapter by stressing the imminence of Christ's return, that he can come back at any moment. Again, he does not believe in the, in the rapture of the church, but he would be what you call a historic premillennial. And... Um, Speaking of millennial, let, let's go to the next session. Let me, let me talk to you a little bit about the millennium, the different doctrines of the millennium. I don't know whose water this is, Corey, but I think I'm going to drink it. Well, it looks like it's been there a while. Oh, let me open it. Okay. Oh, man, that's good. All right, so let's talk about the millennium. This is, this is fun. The millennium is from the Latin word, which means thousand, thousand years. Uh, the text in the Bible is Revelation 20, uh, really 1 through 10. But let me read verses 4 and 5, because this is the only place where it specifically says there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ, which leads some people to say it's only mentioned one time in the Bible, so it's not true. You ever heard that? Y'all need to be hanging out with some of the people I hang out with. I mean, they, I got some interesting friends. I mean, they're like, well, it only mentions it one time, so it really can't be true. Like, really? 
I mean, if, it, if you really do believe... Do you all see now why Grudem started with this? Remember that? Bibliology, the study of the doctrine of Scripture. Because if you discount this or question this in any way, everything else topples. But if the Bible does say there is a millennium, then guess what? There's going to be a millennium, and here it comes. All right, so this is Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, okay, and for the word of God, and the beast not received his mark on the foreheads. Oh, here it is. Uh, his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads, okay, talking about the Antichrist, the 666, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a, here it comes, thousand years, okay? But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years, there it is again, were finished. This is the first resurrection. That is a fascinating text, by the way. And we're going to walk through that verse by verse, talk about what each one of those words uh, mean. Uh, we'll probably get to that in the year, what, 2020, 2021, <laughs> when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But my point here is, there is a millennium, okay? And so you have these different millennial views. All right, let me give you the first one. It's called the amillennial position. And, and again, lots and lots of theologians embrace the amill, which says, on is negate. It means that there really is not a millennium because Revelation is just being figurative here. It's not really going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth like the Bible seems to say. But it's just, it's, we're just talking about the reign of Christ in general. Uh, he, he reigns. There's no really thousand years. Just think of it as figurative, as metaphor. And Jesus just, he just reigns. He will come again. And uh, we will reign with him forever. So they get around the whole millennium thing. They, they just do not believe that there will be a literal thousand-year reign. And again, I have friends, I have theologians that I read who strongly believe this. And they totally look at Revelation 24 and 5 as a metaphor, as, uh, as something not to be taken literally. Okay? Post-mill, uh, the prefix post means after. And this says that Jesus is going to come after his thousand-year reign. Now, this is kind of strange, but here's how this goes. Uh, so there, this is a thousand years. Are you with me? thousand years, when they're over, Jesus Christ will come to the earth, okay? And he will come and get us, and, and we'll go into the everlasting kingdom. But in order to have a post-millennialism, you have to have these thousand years of utopia, of bliss, and many people believed before 1940... Before the late 1930s, there were many post-mill guys. Well, what happened in the 30s that destroyed that? World War II. And people got to looking at post-mill and they're going, in order for y'all to be right, we're supposed to be getting a whole lot better. We're not getting better, we're getting worse. And now with terror, with all the catastrophes, there are very few post-millennial guys today. But in the 20s, in the early 30s, there were a lot of theologians who believed that Christ was reigning in this millennium. Okay, and he's going to come back because these, we're in the thousand years and it's just bliss and it's wonderful, but not many people believe this anymore because of two global wars, constant fighting between nations, etc. Okay, so you got the premillennial position. And there are two aspects of the premillennial position. Let me get, well, actually, there are two or three, but let me, let me see if I can give you these. Now, Grudem would be a premillennialist, all right? The pre means what? Before Christ, all right, you got the you got the thousand years, all right, thousand year reign. 
Amil does this. <laughs> Post-mill does this. It's at the end. Pre-mill would do this. He's coming at the beginning, then he will reign 4,000 years. To me, this is just the more logical, literal explanation of Revelation 24 and 5. But in the pre-mill position, there are two uh, different factors. Number one is called the historic premillennialist. That would be Grudem. That would be Millard Erickson, who wrote Christian Theology. That was my textbook in seminary, and he convinced me. He swayed me away from dispensationalism to a historic premillennialism. And uh, I just got caught up in it. I just got to studying it and was persuaded by my professors and by the people that I were reading. And then I went home. <laughs> and my grandmother had a talk with me. <laughs> she said, Dan, you might need to rethink that. And I was like, okay, Granny. And I was like, boy, I respected her. I had great admiration for my maternal grandmother. What a godly woman. That's my mom's mom, by the way. And I thought, I need to reconsider. So I got to reconsider, re really rethinking it. And uh, I kind of came back to my roots and to the Billy Graham, what he believes, and others that Christ will rapture the church, okay, seven years of tribulation, and then he comes and sets up his kingdom. So you've got the two aspects would be the historic pre-mill, which is, there is no rapture, and you have the dispensational pre-mill, which includes a, includes a rapture, okay? Now, Grudem, he will explain this in detail. He says, and I quote, during this time... The, the premillennial time, the millennial reign, Christ will physically be present on earth in his resurrected body. I absolutely agree with this. I absolutely agree with him. Christ will be on this earth and uh, in his resurrected body. He will reign as king over the entire earth. The believers who have been raised from the dead and those who are on the earth when Christ returns will receive glorified resurrection bodies. They will live on the earth and they will reign with Christ and it will be for a thousand years. After the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, Satan will be loosed, and those who have only outwardly followed Jesus, they will gather together with the, uh, with the enemy, and there will be one final cataclysmic battle, and then the, then the new, uh, uh, new heavens and the new earth. Now, don't get confused that this is not the battle of Armageddon, Okay. The battle of Armageddon is going to happen in Revelation 19, and that's when Jesus destroys him uh, and, and the, the false prophet and the Antichrist, and Satan is bound for a thousand years, okay? And then Christ reigns for a thousand years here on this earth, and then Satan is let out. And some people say, how in the world is Satan going to amass an army with Jesus on earth? That's a good question. I don't know how, but Revelation 20 clearly teaches that, that this is going to happen. You know what, guys? I finally come to the conclusion, I really don't have to understand everything. Because if I try to understand everything, I'm not going to have any room for faith, okay? And I, and I believe in, in saying, well, God, I don't understand this completely, but I trust you that it's going to be exactly the way you described it. And then that will be the beginning of the end. Then you will have the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Basically, the difference in the pre-mill positions is this whole idea of a rapture or, or not a rapture, Okay? And again, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, let me read this, 16 and 17. This is the primary text that dispensationalists appeal to to say that there will be a rapture, that Christ, there will be two comings. Christ will come and take us out, and then he'll come in seven years with us. And it's this text. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, 
who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's where they get it, right there. Shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be uh, with, the, with the Lord. I heard somebody on the radio say, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about these three, 239 people who have gone missing on Flight 370 out of uh, Kuala Lumpur. They're supposed to go to China, but they've just, this morning, I don't know if y'all watched the news this morning, but they actually, they went south, and they think they have found debris. I don't know if y'all heard this or not, but they think they found parts of the plane. And, and somebody said, you think that's something? Wait till millions of us go out of here. Wait till millions of us go missing, and they're going to be scratching their heads. Some of them are going to go, whoa, <laughs> I think the Bible has something to say about that, and then, and then they find out uh, a little too late, but... All right, so, so you have, um, I think I just walked through that part of it with you. That, oh, there's one more thing called the mid-tribulation. Now, this, the, some people believe that um, during the seven years of tribulation, now, this is the thousand-year millennial reign, okay? And right before this, you've got this seven years of the great tribulation. Some people believe, myself included, and I hope I'm right, okay, I hope I'm right, that Jesus comes and he gets us, okay, and raptures us out of here. If I'm wrong, then it's, it's still going to be okay. I'll just have to die. I'll just die for his name because I'm not going to take the mark of the beast. If you take the mark of the beast, Jesus says, you're done. You're, you're really not mine if you take that mark because that gives allegiance to the Antichrist. I have to worship him in order to get bread, to be able to live. So I hope Jesus comes and gets us out of here so I don't have to go through that. But within these seven years... There's called the pre-trib, and then there's called the mid-trib, which means that Jesus will come right in the middle of the tribulation and get us out so that we don't experience the real bad three and a half years of Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel 7. Okay? All right. Oh, my. It really is 743. I got, I got a couple minutes. Would you all let me finish this in two minutes, and then, then I'll let you go. All right? Well, it just went to one minute. The Great Tribulation. Let me talk about this for just a minute, all right? This is uh, point B. The Bible talks about this time, this period on earth. Let, let me read Matthew 24, 21. <clears throat> it says, For then there will be a great tribulation, okay, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, not ever shall be, nor ever shall be. All right, 29, 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Has that happened yet? No. The stars will fall from heaven. Has that happened yet? No. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Guess who said that? He said that. Jesus said that. He said, all of this is going to happen. It precise, have I ever lied to you before? No, I'm not lying to you now, he would say. This is going to happen. It's going to be a... It's, to me, I see it in Revelation 6 through 19. When we start walking through Revelation 6 through 19, y'all, it's going to be on. I mean, it's going to be intense. And uh, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Uh, Grudem, he says, sorry, we're going to go through it. It's going to be part of the Great Tribulation and other people say, no, you're wrong, because Revelation 3.10 says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world. 
And so people like me believe that's referring to the end time, the great tribulation, and God takes us uh, out of it. But Grudem, he's very convincing. And, and as I was reading through his arguments again, he, he makes some very strong arguments for us going through the tribulation, and yet there are arguments on the, on the other side. He says this, and I quote, It seems best to conclude with the great majority of the church throughout history okay, that the church will go through the time of tribulation predicted by Jesus, end of quote. And he has a good point. He says this idea of a rapture didn't really, that, that was a, that's a new doctrine. That, the, the early church all the way up until the 19th century, they never believed this, or the 20th century. They all, they all believed that we would go through the tribulation, but with the dispensational viewpoint, it's very popular in America that there will be a, a, we will be raptured out and then Jesus will come back with us. So you have to decide. You just got to wrestle with it. I, I think y'all know where I am on this, but there are people who very much would uh, disagree with me on that. You say, well, Brother Danny, I'm as confused as dirt. I tell you, I have no idea what you just said over the last 30 minutes. Well, I, if it helps you any, we're going to go through this very methodically, very slowly over the next couple years at Great Hills. We're just going to walk through eschatology, and I hope to be able to explain this uh, in more detail. Okay, let me, let me pray for you, and you can get rolling, and I'll get going too. Lord, we do love you, and we thank you that you're the, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you're the king, and that one day you are true to your word. You're going to come, come again. Lord, I pray that when you come, may you find us, Lord, in the field, being faithful, sharing the gospel, discipling those who are saved, loving you, loving your people. And God, we just pray today that you would give us those opportunities, and Lord, help us to have on our heart what is constantly on your heart, and that is the lost people of this world. Lord, go with us today. Bless me. Bless our people as we, as we go from this place, and you'd give us opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. Again, Lord, I just lift up our brothers and sisters. I know that there are many uh, that go through some tough times right now. They've got lots of struggles, and I pray that you'd encourage them and help them. And may they understand more than anything else, God, that you win. You always win. And that when we're with you, we also win. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Dismissed. Thanks for letting me go a little late. <clears throat>